Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. It's nice to be able to uh, be with you all this morning and to have the opportunity to present the Word of God. Praise the Lord. A week or so ago, David and I were chatting about various things. We won't go into all of them. (laughs) But one of the things that we were talking about was what it is that is above my head right now. What's that? That's three angels, isn't it? And as we were talking together, we were sort of thinking, you know, and, 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 um, and, and I sort of, I don't, I don't remember how the conversation exactly went, but we are talking about, you know, how many of us here this morning, if we were asked to explain why is that there, would be confident in doing so? It's a, it's a question worth thinking about, isn't it? Would you be confident to explain why are those three angels there? Now, some of you, I know, are probably newer here. Some of you really have no idea. Many others would say, oh, you know, that's a summary of, uh, of what Adventists believe right there. But how is that a summary of, of what we stand for as a church? What does it actually mean? What does it actually stand for? So we were, we were talking about, um, thinking about it, and I know that there are many of you who would be very confident in, uh, in sharing exactly what those three angels are all about. However... One of the things I decided was that it would be worth our while, and I was actually chatting with Braden about it a few days later, and we noted that we had a number of sermons in a row, and so we thought, well, we've got three sermons here, there are three angels, let's do a little series. Let's remind ourselves if we have forgotten, or learn if we don't know, why there is three angels up there at the front of our church, and what is the message that they bring to us at this particular time. And so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 24, which is a very famous passage of the Bible that Jesus uh, gave a sermon right here in Matthew 24. We're going to do a bit of a Bible study this morning, so have your Bibles out and ready. We are going to work our way through the Scriptures. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, where Jesus is speaking about those events that will take place just before He returns. And in verse 14, the Bible says, "...in this gospel of the kingdom..." shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then what will take place? Jesus will return. Now that's an event worth looking forward to, isn't it? So the first thing that we're going to notice right here is that Jesus is speaking about his return. He is telling us that the gospel will go to the whole world and then he will return. And that makes sense. We understand that because God isn't going to come back to this earth while there are still people on this earth who have not made a decision either for or against him. If God was to do so, if God was to come back, if Jesus was to come back down to this earth and, and bring the, you know, the end of the world was to come about and the rest of the universe is looking on and they say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you had just waited another five minutes or another half an hour, this person over here would have made a decision for you. God's not going to do that. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so before Jesus comes back, There are going to be events that are going to bring about the the, the gospel being taken to the entire world. And so Jesus prophesies this event right here, and in the book of Revelation, we find it fulfilled. So John sees in vision the fulfillment of this event. 
If we turn over to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. The Bible begins here in uh, verse 6. It says, I saw another angel flying in the middle of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that live on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So let's notice what we have here. We have the symbol of an angel. And what is it the Bible says that the angel has? What does he have? The Bible says he has the everlasting gospel. All right, he has the everlasting gospel. What is he going to do with the everlasting gospel? He's going to preach it. Who's he going to preach it to? The whole world. So here we have a message that is going out to the whole world. Isn't that so? And by the way, what you'll find following after this is this is the first angel, then you find a second one, and then you find a third one. And so the first thing that we notice right here, as a reason why we have these three angels here, is because these three angels symbolize the everlasting gospel that is going to go to the whole world just before the return of Christ. Isn't that so? So if that's the everlasting gospel, we need to know the everlasting gospel, don't we? We need to know what is the message that God has called us to take to the world at the end of time. Okay, what's the very first word of verse 7? Sorry? Here? Okay, oh. In my translation, well, I guess we've all got different translations, haven't we? My translation begins with the word saying. So he has the everlasting gospel. He's going to preach it to the whole world. Well, here it comes. You want to hear the everlasting gospel? Here it comes. The Bible says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. And then it continues on into the second angel, which will be next week. And then the third angel, which will be the week after. And so Braden and I started to look at this and we noted that uh, there's at least four sermons in verse 7, probably another two in verse 8. And then you've got 9 through 13 for the third message. And uh, so you will need to forgive us if our messages are somewhat condensed as we summarize what these messages are all about. There is so much that is packed into this everlasting gospel that we find right here that goes to the world just before the return of Christ. But I want you to notice the very first thing that the angel talks about as he presents this everlasting gospel is that the angel comes along and says, fear God. And that's a strange thing to say, wouldn't you say? I mean, after all, the Bible says in the clearest possible language that perfect love does what? Gets rid of fear. Does God have perfect love? So should we be scared of God? No, we shouldn't be scared of God. But the Bible says here we should be, doesn't it? Oh, you're all shaking your heads. Okay. Sorry? If you're lost, you should be. Ernie, you're saying no, we shouldn't be scared of God. Sorry? He's always chased, I like that. He's always chased human beings. Isn't that that, that a good thought right there? God has always chased human beings. Okay, so God is on our side. We should not fear God, as in be scared of God, but should we honor God? Is God God just one of the fellows? Is that who God is? Who is God? He is our friend. He is our father. He is our creator. Sorry? He is the supreme ruler over what? His people, yes. What else? The universe. We are talking about the ruler and the creator 
of the universe right here. God is not one of the fellas. We should respect God for who he is. We should honor God. In fact, we need to look at, okay, how do you fear God? What does it mean to fear God? How do you honor God? And the Bible has an interesting passage that I'll share with you over in the book of Job, Job chapter 1 and verse 1. I love this in the Old English. The Bible says, Job 1 and verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. I bet you none of you know what the word eschewed means. It simply means he turned away from evil. Okay, we've got some hands coming up, but um, he turned away from evil. Okay? He was a man who feared God, and because he feared God, he turned away from evil. Now, was Job scared of God? No, Job wasn't the least bit scared of God. In fact, we find that when we read the story of Job, they had an incredibly close personal relationship together, didn't they? These were people who were best of friends. But he turned away from evil because of his honour and his respect towards God. And shouldn't we do the same thing? You know, how is it that we, we, we turn away from evil? There are passages in the Bible that we don't often preach about because, you know, they don't, they don't always sit well with us because they tend to make us feel uncomfortable. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians. I told you we're having a Bible study. 1 Corinthians. We're going to dig into this concept of fearing God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, Know you not, or don't you know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a rather plain passage, isn't it? We don't always feel comfortable when we read that, do we? Because the Bible is simply coming out and saying, look, sinners aren't going into heaven. And yet we look at ourselves and like, uh-oh, I'm a sinner. And the Bible is very clear, no sinners are going into heaven. So how does this actually work? What is the Bible talking about here? Okay, so we have the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel says, begins with fearing God. We find that fearing God, if we fear God, it means we turn away from evil. And the Bible says that no evil person is going into heaven. So how is it that we turn away? What is the Bible talking about right here? Well, of course, we need to go back to the cross of Jesus Christ to understand this, don't we? Because the Bible says it's the blood of Jesus that covers our sins, that takes away our sins. You know, some of us stop at that particular point and they say, praise God, he has forgiven me of my sins, I am cleansed and I am clean. And they go on to live their life in exactly the same way as they have always been living their life before. Is that Christianity? No, that's not Christianity because if you come to Jesus and you say, you know, I'm thankful for what you did for me on Calvary. I'm so glad that you died for me so that you can forgive me of my sins because I love my sins and I'm just going to keep doing them. Is that what Christianity is all about? No, that's not what Christianity is all about. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that he could forgive you of your sins. Jesus died on the cross so that he could change you. He didn't want to leave you in a hopeless condition of being lost and enslaved. Jesus came to set us free free by the free gift of his grace 
And that's what the Bible teaches us. And sometimes we get confused over the purpose of grace and over the purpose of this free gift. And many, many times you'll find you know, sermons on grace and, and books on grace and all kinds of things on grace. And it's all about how God's grace forgives us. And that is so true. But that's not where the Bible stops. Let's go to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, that famous passage that gives for us our understanding of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is a free gift, praise God. You can never earn it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. A lot of people stop reading there and they say, okay, then works must be a bad thing. So if works are a bad thing, then we should just keep living our life as we were living it before. Are works a bad thing? Are doing good things a bad thing in our world? No. Doing good things are a good thing in our world. The whole purpose of God's grace is to change us. And if you simply continue reading the next verse, the Bible says, for we are his workmanship. In other words, God formed us, God created us. For what purpose? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. The purpose that God, that Jesus comes into our life is not so that we can continue living our life of sin but to set us free. I was doing a fine job of being a sinner before I found Jesus Christ. I didn't need to find Jesus Christ so that I could keep on being a sinner. I needed to find Jesus Christ so that he could change my life. And that's what true conversion is. That's what Job experienced. Jesus came into his life. It changed his life. It changed his motives. He did not want to live a life of sin anymore and he became a different person as a result. So much so that when the worst trials imaginable came upon him, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed is the name of the Lord. That is a truly changed person. The purpose of grace, the Bible says here, is to save us. For by grace you are saved. Therefore grace is the power by which God saves us. Isn't that so? That's what it is. The power by which God saves us. Does God save us in our sins or from our sins? What does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall do what? Save his people from their sins. Jesus came to change us. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we'll read verse 5. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. The Bible says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for... Now the Bible is going to tell you the purpose of grace right here. For what? For obedience. That is why... Grace exists so that we can obey God because without grace in our lives, it is impossible to obey God. I'm sure you've all been there and tried it, right? You tried to obey God without grace. I know I've tried it on occasion. How long do you last on your own? You don't last at all, do you? You don't have a hope. Grace is God's power to change us and to form us into his image. And when the Bible brings up this particular subject here, fear God, give glory to him, This is what it's talking about. Well, the question then is, how do we receive that grace? We need to work our way through this. How do you receive life-changing grace into your life? Well, the answer is very, very simple. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus. And the action word, the verb in that verse, is the word let. Surrender your life. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Allow him to come in because the Bible says he stands at the door and he knocks. He wants to come in. He wants to be with us. He wants to change our life. He wants to make us into a new and a better person. But you know who stands in the way? We do. Why do we stand in the way? The answer is very simple. We are all born with a sinful nature and our sinful nature loves to sin. It loves to go down a path of evil. You have a natural bent towards it. And living a righteous life, living a pure life, living a holy life is pretty much the opposite of what the human... The Bible says the human heart is desperately wicked and evil above all things. Who can understand it? And I think sometimes we've all looked at ourselves and gone, you know, I didn't even understand myself. Why would I do such a thing? You know, the Bible says a dog returns to our vomit. And how, time, how many times have we gone back to the, the same old sin that we've gone to before? And it's like, why do I do this? That's what God comes to set us free from, by the power of his grace. A transformed life. The Bible goes on in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. It says, the Bible says, fear God. And what is the next thing the Bible tells us in that particular passage right there? Fear God and do what? Give glory to him. Okay. Let me ask you this question. How is it that you give glory to God? We talked about this in our small group. I think it was last Sabbath. How do you give glory to God? By representing? Yes. Sorry? Doing what he says? Yes. Sharing the characteristics in our own life of the life of God. Okay. That's a pretty comprehensive answer right there. Sharing the characteristics of his life in our life. In other words, living a life like Jesus. You see, if we are going to give glory to God here on this earth, you can't do that if you are alone, can you? You know, you can, you can give praise to God, but if God is going to be glorified and people are going to see the glory of God here on this earth, You know, it's rare that you have a situation here on planet Earth where we physically see the Shekinah glory of God. In the past, it was there in the temple. It was seen on top of Mount Sinai. But you do not have a lot of occasions where you see the physical glory of God. So if God's glory, His character is going to be seen in this world, Where is it going to be seen? It's going to be seen in his people. So if God's character is going to be seen in his people, then that's going to revolve around how we live our lives. Isn't that so? Does that then mean that when we become a Christian, we simply live our lives as we have always lived our lives? Is there going to be a change? there's going to be a dramatic change in the way that we live our lives. People are a bit scared of change. But this is a change that is always a good thing to experience. Because God will never take anything out of your life that is going to bring you true joy, happiness, peace and comfort. He's only going to take bad things away and add good things in. 
Do we face some challenges in our world today? Is the devil working on our case and trying to destroy God's image, God's glory, God's character in us? Yes, he is. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 24, where we first started, the Bible says, Jesus says at the end of time, that because iniquity or sin will abound. In other words, lots of evil in the world. Because there is lots of evil in the world at the end of time, that the love of many will grow cold. And I sort of wonder between the correlation between those two things. Because yes, we understand at the end of time that evil is going to abound in our world. But just because evil is abounding in our world, why should our love towards God grow cold? And then I look at our world and I look at the evil that is abounding in our world and I see that Satan has set up traps right throughout our world to drag us away from God, to pull us down, to break our relationship with God, to change us into his image rather than into God's image. You know, there are some advantages and there are some disadvantages to this. The, advantage of, the disadvantage to this is we live in a world where there is probably more temptation and stronger temptations than ever before. The advantage is that when we live a a consistent Christian life today, the contrast between us and the world is going to be greater than it's ever been before, which means that our light is going to shine brighter, isn't it? The Bible says you uh, you, you are the light of the world. The darker it gets, the easier it is to see that light on top of the mountain. Now, doesn't this then mean that if we are going to give glory to God, that our lives should be different to God, we should have a different lifestyle as Christians? In fact, when we call ourselves Christians, the world automatically expects a different standard from us. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah? I know for myself, it happened many times, you, uh, you meet some new people, you're chatting, you're friendly, you have a conversation, you strike up a friendship, and then they ask what you do. I'm like, oh, I pastor the Adventist church over in Maitland. And suddenly they run out of things to say because they really struggle to string a sentence together without putting a bunch of F words in there. And it's like, well, I'm not offended by that because I understand that you're not a Christian. You're making no profession. It's not going to bother me. I've heard that a million times before. I worked in a workshop for five years. I know how this works. But suddenly they're like, uh, why? Because they recognize that I'm a Christian and suddenly... They feel uncomfortable by that. They see that as a Christian, we should set a higher standard. They expect us to set a higher standard. And yet we live in a world, and I was just spending a little bit of time, because there are things, I believe, in our world right now that are custom designed to break and to destroy our influence on the world around us. Romans chapter 12, there's a principle right here that we need to look at. Romans 12. Verse 1 and 2, I beseech you, or I plead with you, brethren and sisters, by the mercies of God, what does Paul do? He directs ourself, he directs our minds to the gift of Jesus Christ that he gave on Calvary. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. A living sacrifice, the surrender of yourself, the giving up of yourself to God. Is that going to make a change in your life? Absolutely it is. Don't be conformed 
to this world? Is it easy for us as Christians to become conformed to this world? You know, it's a funny thing, but peer pressure never leaves. Even at my age, I feel peer pressure. It never leaves. And the pressure is there to be conformed to this world. The Bible says don't be conformed to the world. Be different from the world. Be transformed. Have a new mind, the Bible says, uh, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. While we're here in Romans, chapter 13, verse 14, it says, Put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's old English. It simply says, don't place yourself, put Jesus on, in some translations, like a garment. And don't make provision to fall into temptation. A friend of mine was studying with a lady one time and she was struggling to give up smoking cigarettes. She knew it was wrong. She knew she had to get rid of it. She knew it was controlling her life and she was struggling. And, and so my friend said, well, how do you go about, um, what do you do? She's like, oh, I take all my cigarettes and I, and I crush them and I smash them up and throw them in the bin and flush them down the toilet and get rid of all the ashtrays and throw them all out and all the rest. And she said, um, but "But what I always do is I always take three, at which point he's gone, "Uh uh-oh, and I hide them in the house. You know what the problem is when you hide something? You might try and forget where you hid them, but you are going to know where you make make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. We should not put ourselves in a place of of temptation. Back 15 or so years ago, in the early 2000s, they did some research. Because the Bible says that by beholding you will become changed. In other words, what you look at is what you become like. So if you look at Jesus Christ, what will you become like? Jesus Christ. In the early 2000s, they did some research in the United States. They took uh, a whole bunch of um, young children and they put microphones on them and sent them home to find out what their habits were. They found that back then, the average um, primary school child was spending 35 hours a week watching TV. And 86 seconds in meaningful conversation with their father. Now, 15 years down the track, we are living in a world where amongst our young people, we're having tremendous problems. Have you noticed that? ADD, ADHD, anxiety is a pandemic amongst our young people. And new research that I was looking at just this last week is showing that one of the biggest challenges that we face right now amongst our young people is caused by an absence of silence. An absence of silence. We have become noise addicted. And our lives are ruled by screens. I think they're saying that the average millennial will have spent three years looking at their their telephone screen by the time they retire. Three years like this. You know, it's something worth thinking about. And of course, then they went on to point out how that everything that comes through a screen is designed to lift your 
level of tension and excitement to an unnatural level. And then, of course, because it exists at that unnatural level, to come down off that unnatural level, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And that's what we see creating anxiety, ADHD, depression, all these kind of things amongst our young people today. It's an absence of silence, an absence of doing real things. Back in the 1940s, they did a survey to find out what were the biggest challenges faced by school teachers. And these were the seven biggest ones in the United States in uh, 1940, this was. Faced by school teachers, it was Turkey. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, you can tell this is an American one, uh, making noise, running in the hall, cutting into line, dress code infractions and littering. In the year 2000, they were looking at this survey and looking at the research that they conducted and they thought, I wonder what would happen if we send out exactly the same survey. So they sent exactly the same survey out to school teachers without changing a word. And this is what they came back with. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault. Did something change between 1940 and the year 2000 and has it improved in the last 17 years? The devil is out there going around as a roaring lion. He wants to devour us. He wants to devour our children in particular. You know, as I look at where we are in our world today, Shell and I talk about it, and we would have done things differently with our kids. You know? These, these, are, these are a wonderful tool. But my goodness, they can be a trap as well, can't they? The Bible says, simply says, by beholding we become changed. If we go over to Timothy. Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, what does it say? This know also that in the last days dangerous times will come. For men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false, accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. These are not popular passages for us to read in church today because they prick our conscience, don't they? It pricks my conscience. And it should prick our conscience. That's why God wrote it in the Bible. You see, we read this here and we can actually feel quite comfortable if we stop right there. If we don't read any further, I can feel comfortable reading this because I can read that and go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the world. That's the world right there, isn't it? That's what we see in our world right now, isn't that so? What does the Bible say? It's saying this is what it'll be like at the end of time, verse 5, having a form of what? The Bible is describing God's church at the end of time. That tells me that God's church at the end of time is going to have a major struggle with separating itself from the world in which we live. But God does call us to a higher standard. He calls us, if you're going to take my name, you're going to become an ambassador for me. The Bible says, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Are we lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God in this country? Yeah. Absolutely we are. You know, I, I look at a picture like that and compare it with the one after, and Jesus says, we are to be an ambassador of him, a representative of his government. And that's a rather large contrast, wouldn't you say? 
You see, an ambassador is somebody who lives in a foreign country, doesn't he? By definition, an ambassador lives in a foreign country. And he represents the government from which he holds his citizenship. Now, when the Bible says that you are an ambassador, I am an ambassador, the Bible says you live in a foreign country. This world is a foreign country for us. It's a world of evil. But the Bible says that we are to be representatives of the government of God. Representatives of Jesus Christ. And as such, we should look at our lives, we should look at how we live our lives, and we should ask ourselves the question, am I representing Jesus Christ in the way I live my life, in the things that I practice? And we could talk about many other things. It's, um, is in, it, it, I find it fascinating. We could, giving glory to God is all about, it is totally about your lifestyle. That's what it is. The only way that we are going to give glory to God here on this earth is in the way in which we live our lives and the way that people see us. It's almost become trendy these days to become a Badventist. You ever notice that? All right, but we need to continue on. All of these parts of this uh, message here are linked together. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. So we've had, uh, we've had, I've got through two sermons so far. Fear God, I got through that one. Give glory to him, we got through that one. Two more to go. We'll do these ones quickly. I know I'm running out of time. Revelation 14 and verse 7, the Bible says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. We are living in the hour of God's judgment right now. That's what the Bible says. It is taking place at this moment. And when we start to think about that, it highlights the fact of how we should live our lives, isn't it? There has never been a time down through history where human beings should live more holy than any other time, is there? No. We shouldn't be living more holy than people were living a thousand years ago. But the fact that Jesus is coming back soon should highlight the fact that God is calling us to a holy life. Isn't that so? You know, when I look at this particular prophecy right here, which is directly referenced to this one right here, which uh, is a whole three-part series in and of itself, pointing to when the judgment begins. Once you notice that within this prophecy here, beginning in 457 BC, if you've never read this before, you should read it. It's all in Daniel chapter 9. It's very simple. It's not even in symbols. It just gives you dates. It gives you a date for when the commander is still in rebuild Jerusalem, right down through to the death of Jesus Christ, and then extends it through to the year 1844. It gives you all of those dates right there, exactly fulfilled, just as the Bible predicted that they would be. And so what you have here in the first section of the prophecy is the greatest messianic prophecy that there is anywhere in Scripture. A prophecy that pinpoints the coming of Jesus Christ to the year and tells us exactly, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. 
That's what that prophecy does. It's the greatest prophecy we have of the first coming of Jesus. And over here, what do we have? A prophecy that points to what we're reading about right here, that at the end of time, the message would go out that we are living in the time of God's judgment. We are living in the time of the end. Jesus is coming back soon. This one points towards the second coming of Jesus. And the first section is the seal of guarantee of the second section, the Bible says. And so linked together in one prophecy, you have the two greatest prophecies about the return of Jesus Christ that there are in the Bible. One points to his first coming, one points to his second coming. You know, there is probably, oh, there's so much more I could get into in, uh, in looking into this, but simply the fact that Jesus is coming back soon highlights to us the fact that we should be right with God and that God is calling us to live a life that is transformed by the power of God's grace. I'm going to have to move quickly. I, I, shared, this, I shared this before. And so I'm going to move quickly through it. You have the great disappointment of 31 AD when the disciples preached that the kingdom of God is at hand based on prophecy, applied a literal application to a symbolic prophecy. They misunderstood the daily service, the, the sacrifice of the Lamb. They misunderstood Christ's heavenly ministry. And so in AD 31, when Jesus died on Calvary, they were bitterly disappointed, but God used that event to found a movement that has dramatically transformed our world called the Christian church. Then, of course, in 1844, you had a repeat of the same movement. A repeat of the same thing. The only difference this time around was that there was a misunderstanding of the yearly service of the sanctuary. And, of course, the information was uh, revealed in the same way both times. And what did this produce? It produced for us a movement that is more firmly founded on the Bible today than any other movement on this earth. And I don't say that lightly because so much of Christianity today has moved away from Scripture. So much of Christianity today is simply not taking the Bible seriously anymore. But when you have a great disappointment like this, it causes you, it forces you to study the Word to make sure that what you have is firmly based on Scripture. You think about the, the uh, Adventists back in the 1840s there. They were in a situation where their understanding of the Bible was refined in the crucible of ridicule. The events were fresh in everybody's mind. It was known all over the world that these guys had failed. And so then they discover from the Bible, wait a minute, this is not a failure. We misunderstood something here. And what happens? Massive amounts of ridicule. What does that force you to do? Is this true or is this not true? And that's why in evangelism, one of the first things we need to convince people of is of the Bible. Because if they're convinced of the Bible, then this is the book that will lead them to Jesus Christ and it will lead them to the everlasting gospel that we are presenting right here, right now. And so the Bible begins with fear God, turn away from evil, give glory to him, live a lifestyle to his glory. Why? Because you are living in the end of time. Jesus is about to come back and God is starting a movement here to present this message to his people at the end of time.
But it doesn't stop there. There is one more aspect, and we're going to cover it very, very quickly. The Bible goes, goes on in, in, in Revelation 14 and verse 7. It says, Fear God, give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who did what? Heaven, earth, the sea, the water. Let me ask you a question. When the Bible says that, what part of the Bible is it quoting from? Okay, it's quoting from Genesis. Where else is it quoting from? It's quoting from Psalms. It's a direct quote from somewhere. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of the world. That's a direct quote from somewhere in the Old Testament. Exodus, whereabouts in Exodus? Chapter 20. Let's turn there. What do you find in Exodus 20? Think of moments. Exodus 20 and verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, etc., etc. Why? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is. That's what's being quoted from in Revelation 14. That is what is being highlighted right here. And rested on the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What does the Bible tell us that the Sabbath is? Right there in that passage. A memorial of creation, it points us back to creation. And this subject revolves more than probably any other around the character of God and who God is. We live in a world where this subject is under intense attack and the majority of our world, it seems today, is trying to tell us, no, 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 no. God is not our creator. We came about in different ways. Evolution, etc., it was interesting, I was doing a uh, workshop in New Zealand a week or so ago, and I, I learned something just, it blew my mind. We had an archaeologist professor who was doing presentations for us, a fellow by the name of Michael Hassel. If any of you have read the book A Thousand Shall Fall about Franz Hassel, his grandson. Just amazing research that he's been digging in the Middle East for his whole life. And he was reading an, an Egyptian inscription to us. And the, the Egyptian inscription was talking about how that death is our creator. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just sort of thinking, sitting there, and I was chewing through my mind, and like, okay, that's the foundation of evolution. Natural selection uses death as creator because you have to have all of the lesser evolved species to be constantly dying off so that the master species can continue evolving, right? That's, that's, that's the process, that's the foundation of the evolutionary process is death is our creator. And so I chewed that over in my mind for a while and after a while it sort of started to come to head together for me and I stuck my hand up and of course he'd moved on to some other subject and so I'm asking a question way out of turn. But I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me go back to that for a second. That said that death is our creator. Isn't that the foundational principle of evolution? He's like, oh yeah, absolutely. He said, he said um, so-and-so has uh, written a whole book. He says, like, it's about this thick and he's got a whole section there on how the theory of evolution in it originated with the ancient Egyptians. Now, I thought it originated with the ancient Greeks. But they actually copied it from the Egyptians. That was news to me. But then I look in our world today and I see that we have a unique perspective on creation because we have a day every week in which to remember that God is our creator, a memorial of creation. 
And because we have largely within Christianity lost focus on the fact that God is our creator, it has allowed us to move, it has allowed Christianity to move into all kinds of different directions. And the vast majority of Christian ministers today do not believe in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as it reads. And that disturbs me somewhat because the moment that you move away from Jesus, from God as our creator, you move into an area where death becomes our creator. And whether God still exists or not, it doesn't actually make a difference. Because if God still exists and he's using death as his means of creation, then you have a God who is tolerant of death. Not just tolerant of it, but uses pain to accomplish his purposes. I don't know about you. I don't want to serve a God like that. I want to serve a God who says over here in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, And verse 4 where it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. I want to serve a God whose agenda is to rid the universe of death because death is an enemy, not a friend. And so as we work our way through Revelation chapter 14, and I need to finish, what does the Bible tell us? Fear God, honour him. How? By receiving his transforming grace into your life. Give glory to him. How? By living as an ambassador in this world, letting your light shine, being different from the world in this time. Why? Well, God's highlighting it because he's saying, look, guys, I'm coming back soon. And then where does he direct our attention at the end? Why do we do all of these things? Because... I am your creator. He begins the first angel's message by pointing us to his grace. His grace that he gave to us on the cross of Calvary, he ends it by pointing us to the fact that he is our creator. These are the reasons, the two reasons that we have to worship God. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He gave his life for us. He values us that much and he offers us his grace so that we can live our lives as ambassadors for him in these last days. Don't we serve a wonderful God? Praise God. Do you want to be his ambassador today? I know I do. Praise God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your grace. We thank you for the message you've given to us. And Father, as we consider the everlasting gospel this morning, we pray that each one of us will be drawn nearer to you, especially as we live in these last days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 
497-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia, Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. After Huss was delivered up to the secular authorities, he was asked one last time if he wanted to recant. What errors shall I renounce, he asked. I know myself guilty of none. He was brought to this very spot here in Constance, and they burned him to death. They had to light the fire three times, They wanted to ensure his body was completely consumed. They dug up his ashes along with the soil under him and threw it into the Rhine River. About a year later, Jerome was also brought to this same spot. And as his executioner was standing behind him, Jerome said, Apply the fire before my face. Had I been afraid, I should not have been here. They died with heroic bearing. And a zealous papist commenting on the death of Huss and Jerome said these words. Both bore themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns and scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing. Both these men lived their lives 100% for God, so that when they died, as tragic as it was, they died with no regrets. If we live our lives today 100% for God, fully surrendered to Him, we also can live a life where we have no regrets. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Mind Body Health Connections It was 1944 and winter in Auschwitz, the concentration camp for Jewish prisoners and sympathizers in World War II. Dr. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner there. Frankl noted the effects of discouragement and loss of hope on prisoners. He recorded that in December, the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance, and a great number of them died. Can attitude really make a difference? 
Science confirms the link between mindset and physical and mental health. A person's psychological state is a prominent factor in health. Attitude, social networks, and a healthy diet are woven together in their importance for physical and mental health. These factors affect the immune system and how a person takes care of themselves. Attitudes such as forgiveness, faith, optimism, happiness, perseverance under stress, and trust in God are linked with reduced risk for heart disease, high blood pressure, infection, ill health, and countless stress-related conditions. These attitudes also lessen the severity of illness and speed recovery when it occurs. However, a steady state of grief, worry, hostility, unforgiveness, hopelessness, and depression increase the risk of infection, inflammatory conditions and disease, and slower recovery from sickness. Many factors contribute to disease. Positive, perky people get sick, and critical, crabby people escape illness. However, a positive mindset is as important to good health as better-known factors such as exercise and diet. The mind and body are intimately connected. So, remove that worry wart. Do you have a worry wart that needs removal? Are you plagued by a negaholic naysayer attitude that sends you mountain climbing over molehills? Practicing the following seven suggestions may help tip your mental scales toward the positive side of life. First, smile. Smiling is free but its benefits are priceless. It lowers stress hormones in the brain, improves memory and learning, and powers up the body's immune system. It also is an inexpensive way to improve your looks. Second, express gratitude. People who express gratitude tend to live longer. They have healthier lives, stronger bones, fewer heart attacks, and lower blood pressure. Mentally rehearsing or writing a list of daily blessings is a powerful buffer against mental depression and physical illness. Third, focus on positives. Continually ruminating over sad events or worrisome thoughts overstimulates a part of the brain known as Area 25, which is linked to many kinds of depression. One researcher noted, Attitude is the one thing humans have great control over, but for the most part, people choose to let their attitude run them, or they think their situation has to change before their attitude can change, which is usually not the case. Concentrating on positive solutions and opportunities will help dial down Area 25 and turn off negative ruminating. Fourth, forgive. Harboring anger and grudges hurts the heart increases stress hormones, blood pressure, and increases a host of physical and mental maladies. An act may not be excusable, but it is forgivable. Charles Whitvillet, Ph.D., notes that even when people think about their offenders in a more forgiving way, it helps their emotional health, sense of control, and their physical health improves. Forgiving others and forgiving oneself allows you to let the injury go. The healing spirit of forgiveness is a gift from God. He will bestow it upon all who ask. Fifth, get up. Don't give up. Has life thrown you under the bus? You can get out from under it 
and drive that vehicle. Successful people are not mistake-free. They just refuse to give up. Can you think of a mistake you made that taught you some valuable lessons and caused you to move forward with a new and better plan? Maybe it was not funny at the time, but now it may even put a smile on your face as you think about it. Sixth, nurture your brain and body. Nutrition and lifestyle powerfully affect brain function, mood, memory, and learning. According to Andrew McCullough, director of the Mental Health Foundation in the United Kingdom, we're just beginning to understand the profound link between nutrition and mental health. Eating whole grains, fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, has a long-term mood and brain-boosting effect that no snack cake can rival. Drinking water instead of caffeinated and sugary beverages improves alertness naturally. Adequate rest is essential for resisting fatigue and irritability. And daily exercise, especially in the sunshine and fresh air, has a calming, stress-lowering effect, often more powerful than antidepressants. And seventh, get busy about others. Offer to help someone in some way. Even a little courtesy, like opening a door for someone else, can boost your own health and help relieve depression. Studies show that those who spend regular time helping others not only cut their overall risk of death by 35%, but also improve heart health and quality of life. Chronic anxiety and fear are the opposite of trust. Trusting in God is the most potent weapon against mental and physical illness. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a hiding place for us. Psalm 62, 8. God has promised to fill you with hope and peace as you trust in Him. When trouble comes, when you are perplexed, when you need a friend, God is there to calm your heart and deliver you. He has a plan for your future, guidance for each day, strength to impart during times of trial, and grace to give you courage when you make mistakes. He has a plan for successful, abundant living. He's ready today to help you make choices that benefit your brain-body connection and experience the difference that it makes. He invites you to come to Him for spiritual rest and power for abundant living. Will you receive His plan? You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.